0: Okay, does anybody need a, a handout? I'm not going to amplify my voice. Can, can you hear me okay? I can amplify it if need be. Um, I was at the dentist today and the, the, um, the complaining... I had a checkup and then I had some jaw-related matters and um, the dentist uh, said, well, wel- welcome to the club of the million others who have some form of TMJ. He said, you probably talk too much. That's what the doctor said. <laughs> I said my wife would agree with that immediately. Right. Um, let me say just a little bit about this series. I've looked forward to it, yes sir, with some level of um, fear and anxiety, to be honest with you, because we're treading into an area that's rather, um, that's rather complicated and potentially complex. It's fraught with conceptual difficulties and there are, there are dragons here, for sure. Um, I've mentioned this to a few already, but last night I was sitting at the dinner table with my um, uh, children, and I told my boys, um, would you mind praying for Daddy and for for Dr. Mowish, I'll introduce in a second, and for Pastor Boyd, because we're going to be talking about the Christian life over the next three weeks, and my oldest son, William, looked at me and he said, well, Dad, aren't there like 40,000 views on that? (laughs) And uh, I said they prob- probably are. He said, "Well, then, don't be too sad if they boo you." That's what he said. <laughs> well, all right. That's it. encouraging coming from the home front. Um, let me inter- let me introduce the people and how how we're framing this conversation. Now, um, I'm kicking it off tonight, trying to engage some of the biblical material itself. Um, I- I I'll go ahead and let you know. Let the uh, the the, the um, cat out of the bag and say, I'm not coming at this conversation from any standpoint of neutrality. Um, but, uh, so I, I have, I'm trained in a certain theological tradition and I'm going to talk in that way. And then we can debate that. Uh, we'll have Q and A a little bit later, but I'm this week, um, next week, my colleague who's here tonight, Dr. Peter Mausch. Peter, can you stand and give a wave? Peter is, um, a colleague of mine at Beast Divinity School now for four years. Um, we, we jokingly, you know, call, uh, Peter behind his back, the brain of the campus, right? Um, uh, uh, Peter's a very intellectually gifted man. Uh, he's a lover of Christ church. He's ordained in the Missouri Synod Lutheran, uh, church. He pastors actually St. Paul's, uh, here in town or co-pastors this church, uh, which is an African-American Lutheran church down in the city, um, uh. Peter continues to give a lot of critical and creative thought to the whole question about the relationship of the law to the life of the Christian, and he will come next week and present what we might just term a Lutheran view, but I'll just call it Peter's view. Um, no, but Peter's view. Say for yeah, Peter's view within the Lutheran tradition. And in the week after that, we'll have um, Bill Boyd, who's the pres uh, the president, the um, the pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church. Um, he will present for us um, a, a more reformed or Calvinistic view on the question pertaining to the law and the gospel and the Christian life. So I think it proves to be potentially um, a stimulating a lecture series together. Now, let me say a few things before we get in. I, I have way more, I, this is part of the trepidation, I've got way more uh, material than we have time tonight and and that's probably on purpose. You, you can you you can have the handout to refer to in time, as, as you see fit. Um, but I did want to say a few things on the front end, just to shape and frame the conversation over the next few weeks. First thing, right? This is all under point one that you have here on your on your handout. I've got a little bit more to say than just that. First thing to say is, when it comes to wrestling with the Bible theologically, or the Christian tradition theologically, you, we have to recognize that the Bible doesn't come to us giving us a tightly packaged doctrine of anything. All right, now That sounds kind of hard to say, but I'm going to say it again. The Bible really doesn't come to us with a tightly packaged doctrine of anything. It doesn't come to us like the 39 Articles. I mean, it doesn't come to us like the Westminster Confession of Faith. It comes to us via its own idiom, which in the Old Testament is the law, the prophets, and the writings. And then in the New Testament is Gospels, Acts, Pauline letters, and then the general epistles. And to maybe back that out and just speak of it from the standpoint of the form of our Christian Bible, um, the Bible comes to us in an Old Testament and a New Testament. And they're given material and canonical form so that the work of Christian theology, the work of wrestling with what does God have to say about Himself and His will and His ways in the world is an attendance to that multi-voiced choir that comes to us in the Bible in all of its various genres. I mean, think about the ways in which the Bible comes to us. It comes to us in law. It comes to us in narrative. It comes to us in prophetic literature that comes to us in Proverbs and Wisdom and uh, books like Job. And then you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have that weird book called Revelation that made the cut to some people's chagrin, but it's in there, right? So the Bible comes to us in a multi-voiced way, and the hard work of Christian theology, and I would say the hard work of Christian preaching as well, is coming to terms with what we need to say on the basis of what the apostles and the prophets have said now that's your little quote there on the handout and I'm stealing that straight out of the Karl Barth handbook right Karl Barth and his systematic theology or church dogmatics volume 1 part 1 says that theology Christian theology is not saying what the apostles and the prophets said but it's saying what we need to say on the basis of what the apostles and the prophets have, have said so in light of that This is my second sort of overarching point. This particular matter of the Christian life, the role of the law in the Christian life, has been a part of Christian discourse from the church's inception. I would even dare say that we see the tension over this issue and how to relate this issue in the New Testament itself, all the way into the current moment of the church's life. So that should let us all, I think, um, sigh, a deep sigh of relief that over the next three weeks we probably won't put a bow on this and stick it under the tree and call it good, right? It's a matter of continued Christian discourse. It's a matter of continued um, Christian disagreement. And it's a matter that will continue to demand for the church to give attention to its own life uh, given, again, the material form of the Bible. Right? One more thing. Thirdly, And I want to emphasize this. However this issue is addressed, and I'd love later on in the Q&A if Peter, if you want to chime in on this. However this issue is addressed over the next three weeks, wherever the chord happens to be struck on this song of the gospel that we're all trying to learn how to sing well, one thing needs to be assured over from myself, and I'm sure from Peter next week, and from Bill in the following week, Is that this is a Protestant conversation. This is a conversation that finds its instincts within the Reformation claim that our salvation, that our eternal security rests solely in the finished work and person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by grace and through faith. I mean, I don't, that cannot be said enough. However, we're going to talk about the relationship between justification and sanctification, however we're going to frame that complex amalgam of theological issues that we'll try to unpack over the next three weeks in very different ways, one thing needs to be assured. No one will be claiming that at the final tribunal will stand before the heavenly court and say, thank you, Jesus, for providing my justification and here's my sanctification that I've provided for you in return. There will be no claim like that. Our salvation, the totality of our salvation is located completely and fully in the person and work of Jesus by grace through faith alone. And that's a period, not a semicolon, not a colon. Uh, That's that's a period. So I want to emphasize that because we're going to wrestle with how to come to terms with the Bible, how to come to, to terms with our theological tradition and how to do that in an Anglican context. That's going to be the nature of our discussion over the next three weeks um, but I do want to emphasize that at the core, when it comes to our understanding of the gospel, when it comes to our understanding of how salvation is achieved, how it's maintained, how it's sustained, that that is going to be from beginning to end in the conversation uh, located alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he has done in our place. That's I wanted to emphasize that. Okay, more stuff. Um, I also think, and I gave some thought to this over the past few weeks, I also think that the kind of conversation that we're having over the next three weeks, I'm not sure, maybe, maybe this is an overreach, but I'm not sure it could take place the way in which it can here in an Anglican context. I mean, we have the potential here within our Anglican identity to be able to think about these things, given what I guess Anglicans refer to as Anglican comprehensiveness. Now, I'm a, I'm, I'm a new guy on the block. I'll admit that to, to, the, to the discussion about Anglican theology and Anglican identity. But I did find this quote from John Stott on Anglican comprehensiveness here. I have it on your sheet for you. Stott makes a distinction between what he calls, based on or a principled and a non-principled Anglican comprehensiveness. Do you mind if I read this to you? Anglican church leaders like to talk about the, quote, glorious comprehensiveness of the Anglican communion, end quote. Have you heard them talk about that? But unfortunately, they are not always wise enough to distinguish between the two different kinds of comprehensiveness, principled on the one hand and unprincipled on the other. Dr. J.I. Packer, whom we honor very much in this community and throughout the world, wrote a contribution to a symposium about 25 years ago in which he spoke about these two kinds of comprehensiveness. Let me quote from Dr. Packer. He distinguishes two ideals of comprehensiveness which have been held within Anglicanism. One he calls the virtue. The other, you will guess, is a vice. So the first is, quote, the virtue of tolerating different views on secondary issues on the basis of a clear agreement on essentials. And this is what comprehensiveness meant in the time of the Reformation. But then he distinguishes this from quote the, rev- the vice. This is when gloves come off. The vice of retreating from the light of Scripture into an intellectual murk, where no outlines are clear, all cats are gray, and syncretism is the prescribed task. End quote. Uh, modern Episcopal life, right? <laughs> I was interested a, a few years ago to read a comment from Cardinal Basil Hume, the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Westminster and the country from which I come, England. He was honest enough to say, quote, I'm very uneasy concerning the comprehensiveness of the Anglican Church. Comprehensiveness has been seen by the Anglican Church as a matter of pride. I wonder whether it is not its Achilles heel, leaving the rest of us asking, well, what does the Anglican Church as a church hold to be essential? Good question, end quote. So when I say that this is a proper and a principled discussion that takes place within Anglican life, I guess I'm making an appeal on some level to what classically has been referred to as the Via media in Anglican um, theology, the the, the the middle way. Now, you will hear that, that term has been hijacked in multiple ways. It's been hijacked in a modern context to often refer to a kind of a middle way between liberalism and conservatism. That's Um, bunk, and I'm not sure how else to say that. Um, The other way of identifying it, and this was picked up by Anglo-Catholicism in the the late 19th century, is to understand the Via Medea as a middle way between Canterbury and Rome, and I'm not not sure that's how it was originally intended either. More properly, in the 17th century, early 17th century, the Via Medea was a middle way between Wittenberg and Geneva, a middle way between Luther and Calvin, primarily having to do with the Eucharist and the view of the Eucharist. I have uh, Lutheran buddies, one of them's here tonight, but he's not the one who says this, another one in my context at Beeson, who says, do you ever read the Book of Common Prayer on, on your Eucharist? It's completely confused, right? And I was like, well, you know, Anglican comprehensiveness. I don't, it's, it's, it's the Via media between, uh, between Geneva and between, between Wittenberg. All to say that the kind of conversation that we're having here is a principled one that's seeking to draw from the tradition of the church its major reformational voices as, it, as we attend closely to the to the biblical text itself. So this is a proper and what I would consider principled um, Anglican conversation. Right? That was all introduction. Um, you please feel free to raise questions uh, when we get to the Q&A time. Now, uh, main point number one. The law and the Christian, the law and the Christian, a biblical theological problem, and maybe this reveals, I listed all of these points as problems, Um, so maybe this reveals my own internal tension on this, Uh, I I could have said a a biblical theological potential or something like that, but I went negative on us, Um, a problem, right, I want to read to you from Romans chapter 7, verse 7. And if you have Bibles or cell phones, you can turn there. What then shall we say, Paul asks, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. I should have not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, wrought in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. That, by the way, is a phrase that continues to betray easy understanding. But I was alive once apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The very commandment. Now, I want you to hang on to these terms right here. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. This is where I would say Paul is flexing his muscles as a very good reader of the Old Testament. That which was promised as a means of life proved to be death to me. For sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? I've seen Paul, he, he knows, there, there are rocks to crash on here. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. By the way, Paul very rarely uses this particular Greek collocation. That's what's referred to as the optative mood. Um, if Eugene Peterson and his translation, I don't know how he translates this in the message, but I think a legitimate translation might, in, in our modern uh, um, colloquial English might be, heck no, Right? No way. It's impossible. It was sin working death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. All right. Now, there are books on top of books, on top of books written on Paul and the law. Um, I I, um, actually showed up at Beeson Divinity School some 10 years ago now, and I can remember, it shows how gracious my colleague Frank Thielman is, I can remember going to Frank and saying, you know, Frank, it would be really nice to have a book that gave me a, a really tight layout, a tight taxonomy on the issues related to Paul and the law. And Frank, in his very gracious way, um, I'm very self-aware of my sinfulness when I'm around Frank, um, he, says, he said to me, that that kind of book's hard to find. It'd be great to have that. And then I went back to my office and realized Frank had written that book, right? It was on my shelf. Right? Like, <laughs> Frank Thielman, Paul and the Law, IVP Press, right? So I pulled it off. and I mean, there are books on that. There's a, a, another one that's hot off the press by a fellow named Brian Rosner and Paul and the Law, all to say... the the conversation and the subject matter of Paul and his relationship to the law, and what we mean by that is the Mosaic law. What we mean by that is what within Jewish parlance would be referred to as the Torah. We think of that from the standpoint of the commandments of God. But And these categories can get unhelpful, and I will admit that, but for sake of getting us a conversation started, I'll say that at least in the time of the Reformation, Luther and Calvin included... The law was distinguished between something that was civil, ceremonial, and moral. Um, the civil and the ceremonial aspects are done away with because they are particular to Israel as a theocracy. We're, America's not a theocracy. Geneva's not a theocracy. Um, that was particular to Israel. But God's moral law, particularly as those are found in the Ten Commandments, those continue to have some sort of presence in the life life of the church so the question is what is paul's relationship to the law and it is a complicated issue it's very complex i'll I'll just lay that out i think romans 7 is a good entry point to the discussion because it reveals that this is a tension it's a tension in paul paul is very clear to say that the law in and of itself is good and holy why because the law is the expression from god himself of what it means to be holy. It's an expression from God himself that comes from God himself, revealing God's own desired will for what humanity genuinely and truly looks like. In my own preparation for our coming together tonight, I was somewhat stunned to find out that both Luther and Calvin understood the law to be present in the garden. The command, thou shalt not eat, was present in a what we might refer to technically as a prelapsarian state before the fall. So even in the garden, this command to not eat was in and of itself a gift to the, of the Lord given to people for the maintaining of a relationship between himself and, and, and his people. So I think here Paul is tapping into that. The law itself is good and it's holy, it's right. It emanates from God himself. Can we say that the law is bad? No way. Heck no. Meganoita is the the Greek term there. But Paul is quick to say as well, but sin. And from my understanding, Paul is operating with a concept of sin that is more than just, I do bad things. I think Paul is working with what we might refer to as an apocalyptic notion of sin as an actual persona. Sin is an actual force. It's something that can be identified in the world as that which is hostile and alien to all that God is and that God is for. So in this cosmic battle that has gone on, sin seized that which was good and made it the actual instrument of our death. If I can quote Shakespeare here, I think Shakespeare would say, "Um, the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars. The fault is where? Within ourselves, uh, we are the problem. The law is not the problem. We are the problem. And so, what Paul is tapping into is the, and I want to emphasize this, the ineffectual character of the law to do anything that it was promised to do. I'll say that again. The ineffectual character of the law to do anything that it was promised to do. Not because of a deficiency in the law itself, but because of the reality of sin. And the and the and the hijacking of the law by sin in our own lives, so the law has no potential to bring life in any salvific or redemptive context. It has no ability to do that. In fact, it has the ability to to accuse, and has the ability to show our weakness, it has the ability to show us really who we are before God, and that is sinner. Period. Now, the, the reason why I wanted to emphasize that out of Romans seven is. I genuinely don't believe that Paul here is coming up with a novel concept. This is why I call this a biblical theological problem. I don't think Paul is coming up with a novel concept here or he is creating something theologically on the fly. He's articulating it in a unique way because of his location on the far side of Christ's revelation. But Paul is reading the Old Testament very closely here. In other words, the tension of, that you feel with Paul and the law, it's good, but it's also bad, is a tension that's already present in the Old Testament itself. That's what I wanted to lay out before you. So if you'll, um, we'll go to the Old Testament now. God's Bible, I would like to tell my students. I jokingly tell my students that the New Testament makes a great appendix. I, I don't really mean that, by the way. Return to Ezekiel. sensitive to the time here. Ezekiel chapter 20. What happens in the book of Deuteronomy? In the book of Deuteronomy, on the plains of Moab, before they enter into the land, um, God again reveals the law. He gives them the law. And He puts the law before the people of Israel as a promise to life. I've laid out before you the way of life. Choose life. But there's a flip side to this. There's also the potential for curse. is what we refer to in Deuteronomy as blessings and cursings. You're standing at the crossroads. Your identity as my people is being founded again, being renewed again. I'm giving you the law again. That's why it's Deuteronomy, the law twice over, the second time. You're about to go into the land. This is what constitutes you as my people. This is what identifies you as my people. This is what it means to be in covenant relationship with me, and there's a promise in this to life. Walk in this way, and you will enjoy life. And that all sounds rather great, except for these books of the Bible, right? Uh, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First uh, and Second Kings, and all of the prophets, right? So what you have here is a promise to life, but what we see revealed in the narrative history of Israel is a long and tortured account, torturous account, actually, of Israel's coming into conflict with what the law was meant to do in their midst, in their relationship with with their Lord. So then when we come to a book like Ezekiel, what we see in Ezekiel is a view on the law on the far side of that long and tortured history. right? So when you come to Ezekiel chapter 20... Look at verse twenty five. Moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good, and ordinances by which they could not live, could not have life. And I defiled them through their very gifts in making them offer by fire all their firstborn, that I might horrify them. I did it, that they might know that I am the Lord. You know that's one of those bible verses that's i don 't know I kind of wish didn't make the cut, um, but there it is. I mean what is the claim here that the law was given, the ordinance were were given, and they never had the ability to give life and you see that now from the standpoint of israel 's long and complex history in relationship to her God they didn 't have the ability to give life. The point that i 'm trying to show here between deuteronomy. And Ezekiel is the tension that you feel between with Paul on Paul's relationship to the law and the life of faith is a tension that's fully present in the Old Testament itself. Um, I also wanted to look at the book of Psalms with you, the Psalter. In the book of Psalms, we see both the crushing character of the law. Psalms like Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. But listen to verse 3. When I declared not my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of, of summer. That is the accusatory character of the law. The law crushed me under its weight, revealing to me who I truly was. When I would not acknowledge it, the law accused me and revealed to me in a mirror who I really was. Psalm chapter 51, you know the psalm well. This is the psalm that at least from the title is linked to David's sin with Bathsheba. But this is where, where David begins to cry out about the weight of, of the guilt and the pressure of his sin that laid on him. His bones were being crushed. His insides were being torn up. That's the accusatory character of the law. But what I think is important to see within this context of the Psalms is that the same David, the same David, can write Psalm 19. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, it endures forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant worn, and keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern his errors? Clear thou me from hidden faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. So here you see uh, David in the, same con- in the same book of Psalms able to c- acclaim both the crushing character of the law and the law of sweetness and delight in his life. <laughs> And I think that's the kind of tension that one has to hold on to. I'll talk about that a little bit more in the next bullet point. But that's a kind of tension that needs to be preserved, I believe, on some level within the biblical witness. The law has the ability to crush, and the law has the ability to be a sweet and joyful sound in the ear of the believer, both um, at, at the same and at, at, uh, at different times. Um, Calvin, by the way, in his reading of Psalm a 19 in Psalm 1, or even Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Um, this is where David or sa- where Calvin says, David is actually identifying himself here as one who understands that he has a mediator. He understands that he has one who stands between him and the Father, who has given to him his own righteousness, and he stands acquitted before the throne of God. Here is David exercising that and demonstrating that. Why? Because he could not say Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 without that. He couldn't do it. All he would know is Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 and their and their crushing um, effects. Alright, I wanted to look at Isaiah as well, but our time is going by too quickly. I want to leave enough time for Q&A. But Isaiah is a fascinating test case to my mind. Especially as it pertains to righteousness and justice. Because in Isaiah chapter 1 to 39... The lack of righteousness and the lack of justice in the land of Israel, especially Judah, the southern kingdom, is the means, it's the immediate cause for why God brings his judgment onto his people. And then you move into Isaiah chapter 40 to 55, which may be some of the most off-sided, maybe the most off-sided portion of scripture in the Old Testament. Then you come to Isaiah 40 to 55, and what do we see there? We see righteousness as a gift. Through the suffering servant. It's not something that is maintained. It's not something that's a call to action. You have in Isaiah 40-55, to 55, righteousness and justice are both given as a gift. Um, Isaiah 53:10, 10 we, this is our Good Friday reading. The suffering servant suffers. He makes many righteous. Why? Because the Lord saw his suffering, saw the outpouring of his own sacrificial death, and made many righteous on the basis of what the servant had done for them. Uh, it was the will of the Lord to do that. And then when you move into Isaiah 56 to 66, it's an interesting move further on the far side of righteousness as gift to recognize that there's also a call to live into the righteousness that has already been given to the, those who, as, as, as gift. Um, the terms here that I think can be helpful are, are Luther's understanding of both the active and the passive righteousness of a Christian. The passive righteousness is that which is given completely as gift outside of ourselves. It's alien to us. It's not our own. But there's also an act of righteousness whereby the Christian is enabled to move into uh, a living that it takes into account the fact that they've been redeemed and given the full righteousness of of Christ. We'll come come back to that in in a bit. Okay? So that's, I mean, I'm embarrassed, frankly, to do that as our Bible part, because it's just, um, we didn't talk about Galatians. We didn't talk about um, Matthew. Matthew poses his own kinds of potentials and problems. We didn't talk about James. Um, I mean, there's a lot to come into, into play here. But nevertheless, I think the larger issue that I wanted to present to you on some level is we have to wrestle with what the Bible claims about this matter and come to terms with the Bible's claims and order our own thinking to it. And I believe, again, given the tensions that are present in the Bible itself, that that is a matter, an ongoing discipline, an ongoing character trait in the life of the church that continues from generation to generation. The issue's not been solved. It's one that continues to be a matter of importance and a matter of, of reflection um, in the life of the church and thus our series over these next um, three weeks. Okay. The next point here. The law and the Christian um, an election problem, or potential, or happiness. Sorry, a little negative. Here's the covenant formula from the Old Testament. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Inherent within the covenant formula is both promise and command. Here's just a few comments about election Than the Old Testament. Number one, Israel's existence was solely dependent on the divine mercy and the initiative of God himself. Look at this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 to 8. It was not because you were more in number That any other people than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you for you are the fewest of the people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath which he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh and the the king of Egypt. Why was Israel elected? Why was Israel chosen by God among all the competing nations around for one simple reason? Not because they were the most beautiful or the most powerful. In fact, it was quite the inverse of that. They were chosen because they were... This is the hard logic of election. They were chosen because they were chosen. They were chosen because God set His affections on on them. Um, The commands of election, right? The call to action. Always follow the grace of election. Even, for example, in the famous Ten Words or the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20... The preamble is significant here. By the way, Luther is well worth reading on the preamble to the Ten Commandments. So before we get to any of the you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, this is how the Ten Words begin. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the move that's made there. The move is election and the reality of election, the reality of preceding grace, frames and constitutes the call to human action and, and obedience, right? Uh, similarly, in Deuteronomy chapter six, this is a verse that I've actually found an enormous amount of comfort from Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 20. Here again in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, we've had the Ten Commandments given again. And then a further expression and expansion on the law. And then you come to verse 20 and it says this. When your son, read children, asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the ordinances which the Lord our God has commanded you? So when they come to you and they say, your children come to you and they ask you, what's the law all about? What are God's instructions about? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And He brought us up out from there and he brought that He might bring us in and give us the land which He swore to give to our fathers. And then the Lord commanded us to do these statutes. See the move there? I, just, I love that. I think about that in even relation to my own kids. All right? We have these kind of conversations all the time. Um, what about all these laws, right? Well, let me, let me answer that. Um, we were sinners, enslaved, lost, perishing, dead as doornail in the tomb. And God in His great mercy came in our enslavement, in our dominion to sin, and He spoke and awoke us from that slumber, and He gave us life when we had no claim to life at all. We lead with the claims of the gospel. We lead with the claims of election, and what, I'm, what I think of as the positive effects of election. And that is your salvation is resting securely in the choice of God on you, the claim on you. I didn't have this in the lecture tonight. And I, Peter, I hope you'll address this next week. I imagine you will with your Lutheran instincts. Um, I mean that positively. Me. <laughs> yes, thank you. I'm positive. Um, is, um, is, uh, uh, for Luther and for Calvin, in their own ways, a major aspect of their pastoral role in people's lives were to, when they're struggling with their, ins- their assurance of salvation was to remind them of their baptisms to remind them that you've been claimed by another. You've been brought into union with our Lord because he claimed you in the waters of baptism, it's not you. You're not initiating this, he initiated the move toward you. So that's the logic that you find here, I think in the Old Testament as well, when the law is when the law is given in this formal way, the preamble tends to be, remember you were lost and I redeemed you. It leads with the gospel of grace. Similarly, in Micah chapter 6. I'll show this last one here. Micah chapter 6. Boy, if there is a bumper sticker verse that people quote probably ad nauseum, it's Micah 6.8. I mean, how many youth group pray songs have been written on this verse? I think I've heard a lot of them. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Justice, love, kindness, and walk humbly with your God. I've seen it on bumper stickers. right? But people don't often remember the first part of Micah 6. Um, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. So God calls in all the created order to come into this courtroom scene where God is going to have a showdown with His people Israel. And then He raises this question. Oh my people, what have I done to you? And what have I wearied you? Answer me. Um, yeah, some of you have heard me say this before, so I apologize for repeating. But this is the kind of conversation I have in my own house, right? And when my children begin to use the, it, it's not fair. Um, I, mean, I find myself saying all the things that I swore I would never say, but I'm saying it all the time. I'll look at, I'll look at one in particular who's got a PhD in complaining, and I'll say, um, explain to me exactly. What part of your life isn't fair, right? I mean, in what way are mom and dad wearying you? Is it, um, the fact that you've never thought twice about whether you're going to have a meal every time a meal comes around or when we're driving you to baseball practice and basketball practice? When exactly, when, when we went to the beach last summer, was that a burden? Was that, you know, I, that's kind of what's going on here with God. <laughs> Tell me exactly how have I wearied you? Because I brought you up from the land of Egypt, I redeemed you from the house of bondage. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Don't you remember Balak, king of Moab? What he wanted to do to you? And I, he wanted to get Balaam to give you a bad um, prophecy, but I made Balaam's ass give a different prophecy. You remember that? What about Shittim and Gilgal? Why? So that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. Even Micah 6.8, the famous verse that calls us to think about what it means to live as a call to action in our own lives, it's preceded by the story of redemption. Micah 6.8 doesn't make any sense apart from the context of you were enslaved, but now you've been been made alive. One other thing here with election. Genesis 12.1-3, the Abrahamic covenant, I'll bless your seed and from your seed, Abraham, I will, I will bless the whole world. Brevar Child says, and this is a quote that probably shouldn't be yanked out of context, but election was not a privilege merely to be enjoyed, but calling to be pursued. All right. Number five, the law and the Christian, an eschatological problem. And if we've gotten into um, theological Chinese in here, I'm very sorry. Um, please feel free in the Q&A, we'll, we'll clarify whatever Chinese is, um, is, a, is. We've got interpreters in the room. All right. So as Christians, uh, we live in the overlap of the ages. This, this has actually become an overused phrase to the point that I, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say it myself, but it's, it still gets to the point. We live in the tension of the already and the not yet. Now, I grew up in fundamentalism. I consider myself a recovering fundamentalist probably for the rest of my life. Um, I went to Bible prophecy events when I was in elementary school. I think I got saved about a thousand times at those various events. Um, And and for those of you who know the complexity of the dispensational uh, end-of-the-world stuff, the Tim LaHaye left behind, I don't know if any of you have seen that or read the books, Um, I saw a stewardess reading left behind uh, at about 30,000 feet. I joke with people, I'm a Calvinist on the ground, but in the air I'm an Arminian or a Wesleyan. Um, I don't fly very well. And here she is reading a book about the rapture. It just made me very unsettled. <laughs> um, and it's a complicated chart and system. I, I draw it for if you're here because I still remember it actually. But um, there's a rapture that happens and then there's a seven-year period and lots of internecine debates over whether or not the second coming happens in the middle of the three and a half years or at the end of the third seven years. It's very, it gets sort of choppy in there. But at the end of some seven year period, then Jesus comes back. He sets up his thousand year reign. Then the devil, I always didn't get this part. Then the devil gets loosed for a little bit. Um, he gets to have a, a last run at it, I guess. Then he's done with. And then we go into the new heavens and the new earth, right? it it's com- it's complicated to work out that complex uh um eschatological schema any of you know what I was talking about when I said any of you grew up in that world like me? just me, oh my goodness I'm embarrassed okay um do you want to know what old testament eschatology was? I love it because i I'm, I have a little bit of anomalous in me. I like things to be simplified old age, new age right. I mean, if you see a dispensationalist chart, it's all these sort of lines and question marks and dashes here. And da- the 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 Old Testament eschatology was very simple: old age, new age. And the surprise of the coming of Christ, the surprise of the incarnation, is that what Jews expected to happen at the end of time actually has occurred in the middle of time, in the person and work of Jesus. The kingdom of God has been announced. It's been inaugurated. And in our churchly existence, the kingdom of God is being continued. And in His second coming, it will be consummated. But, 1 Corinthians 15, if Paul were to walk into the room, and we were to ask Paul, Paul, tell us. We love prophecy. Tell us, when will the age of the resurrection of the dead be? Paul's answer, I believe, would be, you're in it now. Well, at least in some sense, why? Because Jesus is raised from the dead. And if Jesus is raised from the dead, that is the first fruits of the age of the resurrection. You are in the age of the resurrection now, yet at the same time, we're not in the age of the resurrection. I think Luther gets at this from moral, from a moral perspective with his, and we've got coffee cups on this around Advent, right? With his famous symbol. I've got that in your handout. Simul aeustis et peccator, at the same time righteous, and at the same time a sinner. It's a a moral way of framing the already and the not yet. We're already something and we're not yet at the same time. So I think, again, I I try to get some thought to this, and, and I'd love for you to press back. But my sense is much of the problems that are attendant to the question of sanctification or the Christian life or what it means to be a human agent in my Christian life pertains to our eschatological location caught in the tension of the already and the not yet. And here are the two dangers, the rocks that we can crash on. Either one, an under-realized eschatology. A lack of awareness or a lack of a commitment to the fact that Jesus is really raised from the dead and that we're really in the age, the new age, even now. That's what one could argue is Paul's motive for writing the letter to the Corinthians. They were working with an under-realized eschatology. Another problem is an over-realized eschatology. And that is emphasizing the already at the expense of the not yet. And I think we can see this in various forms of Christian perfectionism, right? That we can perfect ourselves to a state of sinlessness. I don't know no one in here believes that, right? At least none of your wives do or husbands do. Um, in a state of sinlessness, or of various modes of the prosperity gospel, right? Um, I need everything and I and I need it now. So my sense is that, and I think Luther and Calvin agree here, that the law drives us, even as Christians, to the Savior and our continued existence as peccator in this life. We will never escape that until the second coming or until our resurrection from the dead. You and I will be fully sinner in this life until we exit it. But the flip side of it as well, again to be held in tension, is the possibility that the law guides us joyfully towards lives of gratitude and our current existence in Christ as eustus, as righteous. This tension that we have here cannot be overcome in our current location in the divine economy. But I think that there are pitfalls, potential pitfalls, in the downplaying or the highlighting of the one over against the other. In in Oliver O'Donovan's terms, these pitfalls can be described as, one, moralism. The Christian life is reduced to moral transformation in a way not attendant to Luther's symbol. This is, by the way, where fundamentalism and liberalism are strange bedfellows. An emphasis on morality apart from the person and work of Jesus and the atonement. And secondly, antinomianism, the expression of disregard or insufficient regard for moral questions. And this is tricky. I know there's going to be differences of views on this. Does the gospel contain both promise and command? I'll leave that as a question mark for now. Okay. Lastly, and then we'll go to Q&A. Luther and Calvin on the second and the third use of the law. Now that's technical jargon. But let's explain it here. Okay? What are the three uses? I laid them out for you. Why does this get tricky? It gets tricky because Luther doesn't talk in this way. Um, the, the way in which the uses are ordered and the discussion can differ the one from the other. So this, the actual nomenclature that's tied to the uses of the law gets tricky. But here are the three uses, as typically understood now. The first use is civil. That's the moral restraint for the good of society. Number two, it's pedagogical. This is the so-called second use of the law. The law teaches us, it accuses us, it tells us that our state is a state of sinners and that we are in need of a Savior. Uh, I don't know if you have this with your children. I mean, I live in the world of kids now. But I I get this all the time, especially with my middle son, who will say things like, I can't do that. And it's a wonderful opportunity to look at my, my Jackson and say, and that's why we really need Jesus, right? That's the second use of the law. It shows us our inability. It accuses us. It tells us you can't do that. And it drives us to the Savior in humble reliance and dependence on him. And then the third use is the guide. That the law guides the Christian in a life of faith and gratitude. Now, this will be the sticking point over the next three weeks, okay? Just to lay the cards on the table. Um, this will be a point of disagreement. Interesting and loving disagreement. A beer-drinking disagreement. All right? I mean, this is going to be a point of controversy over the next three weeks, and I think, hopefully, you may enjoy that or find it helpful. So the question really pertains not so much to the first use of the law, but to the second and the third, and the relationship between the two. Now... Um, we really don't have access, now let me rephrase this, both Calvin and Luther, and I would put myself in the theological stream that's been more attendant to Calvin than to Luther, admittedly. But both Calvin and Luther are weighted down with an enormous amount of reception and, um, and, uh, and debate that really makes it hard for us to get some sense of what, what's going on in their own work. Now, that, that's overstated. But just to say there's a lot of play, for example, of Calvin over against the Calvinists or Luther over against the Lutherans. And that, I think, is overplay, but it also uh, says something to us about the problem of getting to these figures that are figureheads for large movements. Okay, So what I'm saying here is um, the whole understanding of Calvin and Luther as it pertains to these particular subjects is itself... An inside house debate between Lutherans and Calvinists. I mean, Lutherans disagree on this. I think uh, Peter will be able to help us with this next week. Lutherans disagree on this. Reformed people disagree on this. People in the—I mean, I know about stories in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. People get defrocked over this kind of stuff. Okay, so this is an uh, an alive debate. So these—what I'm about uh, to—what why I'm saying all this is—I'm going to present a a case for something. But I want you to take this, this, my own presentation with bucketfuls of salt, okay? Recognizing that there's an enormous amount of material, and I'm just not able to even begin to do justice to the complexity of Luther and Calvin. We're entering into the Himalayas with both of, both of them. Now, they're significant figures, okay? But here's, here's, um, oh, you can read that about the law of the Torah on your own. Here's from Luther's disp- disputation against um, Agricola, this all needs context, and, and Peter will help us next week with this. This is Luther's disputations against what were known as the Antinomians. And this is a group that taught that the law should not be preached, and it should not be taught um, because of its overtly negative effects, period. So Luther had to, react to respond to this because there's a sense in which the Antinomians thought they were, for lack of a better term, out-Luthering Luther on this one. And here's how Luther responds in Thesis 21. And the law terrifies those it's not supposed to. Therefore, the law is not taught. That's what he's responding to. I respond, says Luther, the law is already mitigated greatly by the justification which we have because of Christ. And it thus ought not to terrify the justified. Yet meanwhile, Satan himself comes along and makes it often overly harsh among the justified. This is why it happens that those are often terrified who ought not to be by the fault of the devil. A side comment here, but Luther had a very alive and real view of the devil. I'm, I'm not sure I do, like I should. But Luther certainly believed the devil was around. Yet the law is nonetheless not to be removed from the temples, and it is indeed to be taught, since even the saints have sin left in their flesh which is to be purged by the law until it is utterly driven out. For this wrestling match remains for the saints as long as they live here. Here they fight day and night. There they finally overcome through Christ. Before justification, now let's clarify this here, before the divine decision to acquit us on the basis of the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the law ruled and terrified all whom it touched. But the law is not to be taught in such a way among the pious, so as to accuse and condemn, but so as to admonish to good. For I ought not to say or preach, you are not under the remission of sins. Likewise, you will be condemned. God hates you, etc. For these sayings do not pertain to those who have received Christ, but address the ruthless and the wild. Uh, Luther's so much more fun to read than Calvin. I will admit that, actually. The law then is to be attenuated for them and is to be taught them by way of exhortation. Once you were Gentiles, now, however, you are sprinkled and washed by the blood of Christ. Therefore now, offer your bodies to obey righteousness, putting away the desires of the flesh, lest you become like this world. Be imitators of the righteousness of good works and do not be unrighteous, condemned like Cain, etc. You have Christ. Thesis 27 from... Uh, the disputations thus the first part is redemption which we have by faith alone and by this the sacrament and by this sacrament that is the gospel the ten commandments are fulfilled and redemption given us gratis by grace alone but the other part is the example according to which we follow christ and act well this is why it is all caused by faith. That is crucial turn of phrase there. It is all caused by faith, whatever is done. Therefore it is said, faith alone does all good things. Do I have in your handout a quote by Oswald Bayer? Is that next in there? No? Um, okay, I hate it when people read me long quotes and I can't see it, but... I'm going to do it, alright? Listen to this by Byer on, on, from Martin Luther's theology. To be sure, says Bayer, Luther can also talk about growing in sanctification as regards sins being swept away each day and life being renewed so that we do not remain in sin, but that we can and ought to lead a life with all manner of good works. Progress means nothing but beginning anew. This is the part of Luther that's got a deep hold on me. Progress means nothing but beginning anew, again and again. I will readily admit that within my own theological tradition, the one that I've been trained in, that the attendance to progressive sanctification can at times run into the very large brick wall that we turn in on ourselves, attend to ourselves, and see it as necessary to identify our own progress. Like we do with our kids on some chart, you know, when they're growing. Here's, I'm four foot five, now you're four foot seven. The sort of notion of being able actually to identify our progress in, um, in good works. That is not the way in which it, is, it works out. Rather than this ever ascending scale, progress means nothing more for Luther than beginning anew again and again. It's that life is a life of repentance. Beginning without progressing, however, is retreat, says Luther. But this process of sanctification cannot be assigned grades. Believing means that one is removed from being in charge of oneself and responsible for one's own judgment. If this is not taken into account, then one's observation about oneself can lead to a pious version of being curved in on the self. And by the way, that is the definition of sin in the tradition, right? In other words, if progressive sanctification means, or sanctification means, a life in holiness means, that I'm turning in on myself and observing myself in an act of progress ever moving forward, we run dangerously close to actually doing what sin is. Rather than looking to the object of our faith, we turn to ourselves and the quality of our own faith. That's a distinction that has to be made. The sanctified individual as such does not deserve recognition. One should take note of God who sanctifies and who uses His word as the means of sanctification end quote and by the way, a little plug for our bookstore um buyer's book on martin Luther's theology I think is very good, and it's in our bookstore you can you can buy it okay now let me save calvin now i am I, I tend to be a I have a little ecumenist in me i I'm, I'm more of a bridge builder than a bridge blower upper whatever that word means um so in my reading right in my reading again this is my reading the more and more i prepared for this it was very hard for me to see a strong material distinction between luther and calvin on this subject now i'll admit that the two of them may strike the chord in different ways given their own temperament and given their own particular reading of scripture but it was hard for me to see a material distinction between Calvin and Luther on this um, particular subject. Here's Calvin. You have it on your handout. In uh, uh, book two on what we would call the second use of the law. This means that dismissing the stupid opinion of their own strength, they come... We don't write that way anymore, but I kind of like it. Dismissing the stupid opinion of their own strength... They come to realize that they stand and are upheld by God's hand alone. That naked and empty-handed, they flee to His mercy, repose entirely in it, hide deep within it, and seize upon it alone for righteousness and merit. For God's mercy is revealed in Christ to all who seek and wait upon it with true faith. In the precepts of the law, God is but the rewarder of perfect righteousness, which all of us lack. And conversely, the severe judge of evil deeds... But in Christ, his face shines full of grace and gentleness, even upon us poor and unworthy sinners. He goes on. Again, this is the second use of the law language. It, it, It accuses us. It condemns us. shows us our need. For what would be less lovable than the law, if with importuning and threatening alone it troubled souls through fear and distressed them through fright? David especially shows that in the law he apprehended the mediator without whom there is no delight or sweetness. And here's Calvin on the third use. We ought not to be frightened away from the law or to shun its instructions merely because it requires a much stricter moral purity than we shall reach while we bear about with us the prison house of our body. That's a great t-shirt. You are looking at the prison house of my body. Right? For the law is not now acting toward us as a rigor, rigorous enforcement officer. See, this is again, what side of our eschatological tension is the law speaking to? For those who are fully righteous in book of in, in articles of religion language, for those who recognize works not done apart from faith, but work good works done in faith, can only do so from the standpoint of recognizing that the law and its requirements have been completely fulfilled in the person and work of the Son. So the law, he says here, is no longer acting toward us as a rigorous enforcement officer who is not satisfied unless the requirements are met. But in this perfection to which it exhorts us, the law points out the goal toward which, through life, we are to strive. (coughs) Both Calvin and Luther read the Genesis 32 narrative of Jacob wrestling with God at Penuel. Both of them read this account as a symbolic indication of what it means to live a life of faith. We wrestle with God at the River Jabbok. So here's my note. The law for Luther and Calvin, as I'm reading them, okay always accuses those who seek to secure their salvation on the basis of attendance to it. The law is not the means by which our union with Christ, and that's the preferred language in the Reformed tradition, or justification by faith in the Lutheran tradition, the Reformed affirmed that. The law is not the means by which those are established or maintained. Faith Faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ in His active and His passive obedience. Let me parse that out. And the fact that He lived my life as the lawful fulfiller, and He died my death as the one who suffered under the curse of the law. That is the location for all of our hope of salvation. We participate by the Spirit in the lawful fulfiller, Jesus Christ. A couple last things. Thomas Cranmer, I had to toss some Anglican juice in here on good works. Um, I don't know if we have this on our bookshelf at the uh, at the bookstore, but John Leith's small little edition of the creeds of the church, really worth having uh, on your shelf. It's rather inexpensive. But in there, in the section on the English Reformation, he has the, the 39 articles, but he also has the Edwardian homilies. The homilies that Cranmer wrote during the reign of King Edward to kind of sh- to help shape um, a Protestant understanding of faith and doctrine in in the Church of England. He The first um, sermon that uh, that Cramer wrote was on reading the Bible, encouraging people to read the Bible. Um, and then he wrote uh, one on justification, and then he wrote another uh, homily as well on good works. Well, this is from the homily on good works. Two significant concerns come from this. Number one, faith is not idle. And number two, Good works done apart from faith are superfluous or at worst, damnable. That is not a popular opinion, by the way, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, people would want you to know their good works. And people want you to know that they're good people. And I think, you know, Cranmer and the best of the Protestant tradition would look at them and say, we're really grateful for that and the way in which it helps sustain a good civil society. You know, it's a good thing. Thank you but as far as your salvation goes, it only actually serves your damnation. It's an act of superbia. It's an act of pride. Um, uh, Can I share the Gospel with you? right? Where does one locate the good works Christ has called us to? He says, in Holy Scripture, I yanked this quote out, not such works as men have studied out of their own brain of a blind zeal and devotion without the Word of God. And here's how Cramer encourages pastorally... Our movement toward good works. Notice it's not a pulling ourselves up by our moral bootstraps here. Apply yourselves chiefly above all things to read and hear God's word. To mark diligently there and what will his will is that you shall do, and with all your endeavor apply yourselves to follow the same. Ashley Knoll in his book Thomas Cranmer and I spelled that wrong, I apologize. And the doctrine of repentance says, For once he became a Protestant, Cranmer always insisted that true love for God arose solely as a grateful response to the assurance of eternal salvation. In Cranmer's mature view, only the good news of justification by faith empowered Christians to love God, their neighbor, and their enemies from the bottom of their heart. Well, last little bit here. I'm Bart, and our time is gone. Barth actually indicates and emphasizes in his own work, and I I wanted to talk about this and I I just uh, frankly ran ran out of time, but Barth is a fascinating um, example of someone who tries to learn from both Luther and Calvin on this subject matter. Emphasizing, I think prioritizing the symbol character of our lives, that we are caught in the tension of already and not yet, that we are caught in the reality of being fully righteous and fully sinner both at the same time. And what Bart says, I think, in a very beautiful way, is that really sin is to be understood as the pride of man, the pride of man to self achieve, to self instantiate, to um, to uh, to build a ta- our own tower to God. And the beauty and the power of the gospel is that God humiliated himself, he humbled himself to destroy the pride of man. It's the great irony. To destroy the pride of man, God actually humbled himself. Luther and Calvin, I believe the scriptures as well, and their entire voice, do not affirm or even make possible the fact that we can self-achieve or that we have self-sufficiency in any way to make our standing before God um, complete, full, or even get to get out of the gate. That's only done by the person and work of another. And if there is room, and I'll leave that open for debate over the next two weeks, if there is room for the law in the continued life of the Christian, of God's moral teaching and instruction, it is so only on the basis of gratitude that flows from spontaneous love that's built there because of what Christ has done for us already, it's not to do so so that we can answer its own accusing voice. That has been taken care of for, care of for us in the person and work of the Son. Okay? Alright, that was a lot. We have about 15 minutes. You want to bat this around? Who's angry now? I might be a little angry myself, actually. I'm joking. Any questions that you want to ask or clarifications?
1: Jim. tension between the flesh and the spirit, and it's so hard when you're in the flesh to believe that
0: you can be saved without earning it, it's just a fight to accept that, and so we constantly
2: fall back into that, I I think, and
0: that's kind of what you're talking about. Right, and I think that again, when I talk about the function of the law, um, to accuse even in the life of the believer, um, but to also possibly protect take a different role in the life of the regenerate, which is us as well, the sweet side. When it does its accusing work, it does it exactly at that point. When we're driven back to ourselves, this is that turning in on the self in some way to establish or maintain or to seek assurance outside of the work that's been done outside of ourselves. Right. So to seek assurance in ourselves, whenever the tendency for us to do that, I believe the law again peeks its head out and begins to do its accusatory work. but when, in, but and again, this is the flip side of that, but when in recognition, in faith, as the articles of religion say, but from the standpoint of faith, when we recognize that we cannot do that, nor should we even try, that we're in the position of beggars who have been given the grace of God, then the law can take a different role in that particular way. But that tension there that you're expressing, I don't believe is one that the Bible will let us, let us off the hook of, nor really our own experiences will let us off the hook of that. And this is where I think pastoral wisdom comes into play. And I don't have a lot of expertise in this area or really a lot of experience. I dealt with teenagers for a while, and I guess, you know, that's one one way of dealing with it. But, um, you know, it really takes pastoral wisdom in small group settings or in one on one settings with other people to know how to enter into that. I think that takes real wisdom. There's no form, you know, easy formulas here. Um, I mean, I just, I'll give you an example from my own home. My wife probably wouldn't want me to do this this year, but. Again, you know, my, my wife and I come out of a world of fundamentalism. We knew the accusatory word of the law. We knew that, and we also knew, even though they would have never said this, what might have been a de facto a kind of Pelagianism. You know, in other words, sure you got saved by grace, but you maintain it by your work. I don't think it would have said that, but de facto, that's how it was on the ground. You know, my my wife needs to hear again and again and again, me too, that. You know, this is not about you doing that. Matter of fact, that's a turning into yourself. You're freed from that to look completely and solely to the work of another. And that's, that, I think that's a significant point. But I also think that, you know, this is the tension that I don't want to let us off the hook of. But I also believe that Paul's very clear to call us into a life that corresponds to who we already are fully in him. I mean, that's the, I believe that's the sort of tension that we feel in, in the scriptures. Yes, ma'am. I was reading how mother Teresa, who I know is Catholic, but when she was
2: 17, she just, you know, I'm going to do everything (coughs) to God just with this passion, just my whole life. And she began to embark on that wonderful ministry, and it was the opposite that happened. You know, as her diary showed, she had depression, darkness, alienation from God. And so um, during that whole struggle, she kept this work while her interior life was, I'm not and it was almost like she was, um, I mean, she would confess that she was doing these works because she loved God so much, and it would make her close to Him, not, you know, not to be self-congratulatory. You know, and it, it wasn't making her close to Him. And so maybe, I mean, she was admitting that in her diaries. like she would go years saying, I don't feel God. I'm alienating from him. Are You Dare, you know, that kind of thing, as she's doing this work. So you could say, "Hey, that's true. faith." But B, you know, maybe she was trying to get, I mean, she admits this, a result. Like if you say, hey, I love God and I my life to him, and then you're thinking you're going to have this close communion with him, you know, you're still doing it from a human point of view of, you know, and it, it wasn't working for her. So while she had this wonderful external ministry, hmm. her internal life is one of this extreme darkness, depression, hmm. alienation, and from God, it's,
0: it's, it's but <coughs> Yeah, I mean, I... I to speak to that yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean that's, that, there's a lot going on there. And I, I don't know Mother Teresa very well to, to speak into that situation. But, um, you know, th- the character of faith is in its object. Right? It's, and, and I think this is why Jesus talks about faith in the terms of mustard seed. It's the smallest thing we can find. It's very small. It's not, it's not about the size or the quality of the faith. It's about the object of faith itself. And if one thinks that entering into this sort of life of ascetic self-denial... Right, that we see within the monastic tradition in the life of the church. Um, Luther is exhibit A of this. I mean, you talk about, I mean, you read Luther's account of how he was so passionate to attain some sort of state of righteousness. Um, I mean, what's his famous line? If anyone could have gone to heaven on the basis of their monkery, it was me. I mean, I was a monk's monk. I did everything better than everybody else. And he was torn up with internal tension over that. Um, and I, you know, I, th- this gets into areas of spiritual theology as well. There's no formula here. We're, we're talking about engaging God right, and living a life before God. I think that's why both Luther and Calvin, toward the end of their careers, both recognized that that story about Jacob at the River Jabok wrestling with God all through the night, that's indicative of what our Christian lives are like. So if you think of sanctification in terms of some sort of triumphalist ideal, I mean, that just has to be set aside. It's a wrestling match on the side of the river that doesn't let go of God until the end of the night, until He promises to give His blessing. Um, you read, I mean, I, I I went through a sort of phase. And again, I'm probably still recovering from this as well. Um, in my early 20s, when I was all about the mystics and the Puritans, right? Now, I mean, have, have you read like David Brainerd's journal, the, the the founder really of the missionary movement? His journal. I mean, I don't sounds I'm borderline schizophrenic. I mean, one day he's like, you know, I'm, 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 am gee, I'm extemporaneous prayers of Jesus all day long. The next day, I'm a worm. I'd rather die. I don't want to live. He's like, is that, that, you know, there's a tension here that I think we need to be very careful when we make these sort of promises about what it means, um, to live a life that's encountering God. That, that, that's, that's that can't be easily codified. There's certainly no formula there. Think about what C.S. Lewis said about Aslan. He's not a tame lion. Um, and you know, from a biblical standpoint, think about the book of Job, right? I mean, Job was at his darkest and most dire moment when he thought God was completely absent from his life. But from the perspective of the biblical narrative, that's when God was watching the closest. Right? I mean, God was involved in this thing very, very organically and very personally. Um, his reputation's on the line too, and at least the narrative standpoint. But Job thinks God has completely abandoned him. It's very hard to our, it's very hard to give an account of theology and even our own lives, Christian lives, on the basis of experience. Very hard to do that. That's that's a very slippery moving target. It's like those balloons you have when you were kids. You know, you grab them and they just keep sliding out. So, you know. Anybody else want? How did he realize that? Or, or what? Well, Calvin backs into that. I mean, you can hear the truck, you know, beep, beeping in reverse. Um, you know, that, th- th- it's not like Calvin. It's not like David's identifying himself in that way. No, no, but he, he realized but it, 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 it had not been revealed yet. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's a very good point to make here, especially as it pertains to, I mean, and I, I don't think anyone here is working with these categories, but for example, the Old Testament, you'll hear this sometimes. You know, the Old Testament saints were saved by their keeping of the law, and New Testament saints are saved by the finished work of Jesus. Right? I mean, both Luther and Calvin would break out in hives at that distinction. I mean, how is David in heaven now, for using that terminology? Answer, on the basis of the person and work of Jesus Christ, period. Just like we are. But he did so on the basis of figures and types and shadows that looked forward. Right, That was his location in God's ordering of history. Jesus had not been revealed in the Incarnation, but through types and figures and shadows, he's anticipating something in the future. And that's a forward-looking account of faith. And I I think what Calvin is saying is, if David is expressing something genuine about his state in Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, as it pertains to the law, to the instruction of God in his life, then that can only happen if he has some concept of a mediator that's standing in his way, so he's backing into that. that David is confessing it, but it's a necessary move that Calvin would make on the basis of a two-testament canon. In David's realization is much more difficult than ours, and it's very hard to even know our own consciousness when it comes to intentionality. I mean, I, you know, it's 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 hard to, it's hard to articulate that. Um, but on some level, David is anticipating something on the role of of of, of someone who's mediating between him and and. Uh, from his terms, Yahweh. I have mine. I mean, they sign it at Beeson all the time. Mine is John Leith's edition of the Creeds. Is it the Creeds and Councils or just the Creeds? <coughs> L-E-I-T-H. L-E-I-T-H, John Leith. It's a great handy reference. If you, I mean, it's got Nicaea and Chalcedon and, um, you know, and moves on from that as well. Don? Can
1: you question yourself a little bit the, uh, the tension that we've been talking about all night long um, and how that manifests itself with the idea or the concept of walking uh,
0: by the power of the Spirit as opposed to flesh? Or abiding yeah. in Christ? Right. Um, how does that match up? I think organically matches up. In other words, the call to walk in the Spirit, and this is again, we could got, we could have gotten into this in Galatians. The call to walk in the spirit and not to walk in the flesh, again, to my mind, those are primarily eschatological categories. I think we tend to think of it as sort of primarily an internal white dog, black dog fight going on. But I think Paul's thinking primarily in terms of eschatological categories, the old age is the age of the flesh and the new age that we're in is the age of the spirit. So walking in the Spirit is in and of itself walking in that frame that allows the law, the teaching of God, uh, the commands of God to function in a way positively in the life that doesn't accuse. And this is why I think Paul goes on in Galatians 6. And again, it's a point of controversy interpretively. But in Galatians 6, after Paul talks about um, walking in the Spirit, he says, "...and bear one another's burdens, and in so doing you fulfill um, the law of Christ." And my own understanding of that is he's not talking about here about the law of Christ as opposed to um, Old Testament law per se. He's understanding the law itself, God's Torah, his instruction, via the medium and the intermediary role that Jesus plays in helping us interpret the significance of that for our lives. So I wouldn't play in my own mind Um, the Spirit of God um, walking in the Spirit over against what we might refer to as the third use of the law. I recognize that some do, and I also recognize that coming to terms with the proper language to attend to this subject matter, I'm happy for people to talk in very different ways about this. Because I think at the end of the day, we're all trying to get at the same thing. Um, But I'm happy for people to talk in different ways about this. But in my own understanding, the call to walk in the Spirit and the role of the third use of the law are not antipodal the one to the other. I'm, I'm just not convinced of that. Um, but, you know, another side of that too is, I mentioned this already, but, you know, the role of the law in, in the Garden of Eden itself. Luther and Calvin are fascinating on that. Yeah. So in that sense, it's being truly human. right? Walking in the Spirit is being truly human. And uh, in the Scriptures of God, this is what Cramer says, if you want to know what that means to be truly human, then you attend yourself to the reading of the Word. You attend yourself to the Word. You want to press back on that, Don? No, no, no. (laughs) Coffee?
1: Looking at faith versus works. Yeah. It seems to me that our secular society is such a strong, strong adversary to justification by faith because we measure everything that we do. Yeah in monetary terms, yeah. in terms related to our success at publicity, to, you know, the growth of a church even, you know. A successful pastor has yeah. a huge church, yeah. and, and we measure his worth in the size of his church mm-hmm. too often. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems that there's that, speaking of tension, there is that horrible tension of the secular world in which we all have to exist. Versus the world that you ought to live that is the, the world of faith
0: yeah I mean I think you articulate that very well I mean the gospel is countercultural and and the most um, um obvious and and uh, and and uh, great ways i mean it's but the, sec- the secular world is his world too
1: he raises it up when he chooses to raise it up, and he breaks it down when he chooses to raise it
0: up. It... Yeah, that'll be next year's series. <laughs> <there>. <laughs> yeah. well, do we have time for one more? Yes, sir. get back to on
1: the third use of the law? Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. It, it, it seems to me that it, it, what I sometimes fight with is the separation. I think that's what you were getting at. Yeah, and that, appearance. you know. But it seems in the way that I've always heard of the this of all, it's, it's from a personal point of view. It's how the Christian does something as opposed to how Christ does something. And I think that's a misunderstanding. I, I, I appreciate how you pointed out how Calvin said it's all done by God's hand. But to me, that's where it always quickly goes off the rail. Because as soon as you turn it into a, a human condition, we're so well trained in, in how to take that and run with it, you we immediately fall back into something else. But it seems to me that the third use of the law really is just the second use of the law. It's just going back again to justification every time. And if you keep going back there, you're just getting it for price, and there's no use for the third use of the law.
0: Yeah, and 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 that's what you're going to hear next week, I imagine, right, Right. Peter? Peter. Um, And this is the point of division, right? I mean, within Um, Reformation circles, right, Reformed circles, the the emphasis of the soteric event itself, of what salvation is, tends to be primarily union with Christ. In other words, it's not reduced to justification by faith alone as as what salvation is in total and its complete reality but it's our being brought into our union with Christ, um, which is both our justification and our sanctification, which are, and this is how I I, I frame this, okay, which are necessarily related and distinct. They need to be made... In other words, I'm not convinced personally, but I recognize that this is a point of of discussion and division. I'm not convinced personally that sanctification is just coming to terms with our justification. Um, I'm happy to say, for example, that our sanctification... Is in and of itself um, operating from the first cause of our justification. I'm happy to put those in proper logical sequence. The one has to come after the other. Calvin didn't do that, and Lutherans hate him for it to this day. I kind of wish Calvin wouldn't have done that too. I mean, Calvin put in his discussion sanctification first before justification. I'm like Calvin, you just made, you've made life very hard for me. No, don't do that. Um, but I want I'd want to keep them distinct on on some level. But this is where Bart has had his big influence on me. I'm glad you say this. I do emphasize, and this is where I differ, for example, from the Westminster Confession of Faith. If I were to to stand on the floor of a Presbyterian and defend myself for ordination, you know, I'd have to talk about this. You know, from the standpoint of the Westminster Confession of Faith, sanctification is primarily progressive. Our personal growth and holiness. And again, this is Luther's influence on me via, via Bart. I do think sanctification and justification are both equal to this one salvation event. This is where Calvin has his influence on me. But I would emphasize the symbol even in the discussion of sanctification. So Calvin or Bart might say, symbol sanctus et pacator as well. We're at the same time saint and sinner, right? First Corinthians one thirty, one one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, he has become for me justification, sanctification, wisdom. So he's, he's, he lays all that out. So I don't want to emphasize the progressive either. I want to emphasize what I already am positionally fully and completely. I want to start there. And I do think things get off the, tr- off the rails a little bit when we emphasize our own particular involvement in the sanctifying process. And that's, again, a kind of turning in on the self. Rather than recognizing, you know what? I am already fully and completely sanctified in Jesus now. I can't be more sanctified. I'm fully in that. So whatever progression is, and again, I'm, I'm getting real com- uncomfortable talking about that. But whatever that is, it's coming into terms with that fact. That I'm fooling completely already that I'm not making that happen. I am already that completely and fully in Him. I'm justified and I'm sanctified 100% completely now in my in my um, eschatological person. That's why I've said in other contexts at Advent. Um, I am that right now. The real Mark Gentilette not the guy you see before you. It's the guy that's already hidden in Jesus. And there's something exciting about someday actually getting to meet myself. i would be... My wife can't wait to meet that guy. All right. <laughs> Much easier to live with. All right, let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together and I pray that you will bless these next um, three weeks or the next two weeks. Bless Peter as he prepares and comes and gives of his time to be with us and Bill as well. And Lord, we want to lay this before you honestly and humbly. Um, we're trying our best to come to terms with your word and And the best of the voices and the tradition that you've given us, we're not alone in this battle. But Lord, where we err, where we're wrong, I pray that you'll correct us, that you'll guide us by your truth. And let us be humble and open to learn, to receive, and to be corrected, Lord, in our thinking about you. Because more than anything, collectively, we want to glorify you. And we thank you for what you've done for us in your Son. We thank you for the gift of salvation in Him. And we ask these things in Your Son's name. Amen.